0: Uh, well, again, good morning. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, maybe you're new with us today. Maybe you're watching us online for the first time. My name is James. Um, I'm, the, I'm the lead pastor here at Freedom Village. Uh, great to be with you this morning. Um, today, we're continuing our, our study uh, of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there with me. Um, and as you're turning there, uh, let me set up our text for today. Uh, we know that 1 Peter was written by Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, uh, and one of the leaders uh, of the early church. And, and here in this letter, we see Peter is writing to Christians who've been scattered. They've been exiled uh, all throughout Asia Minor, or what is now, if you have a map or you're familiar with geography, what's now modern-day Turkey, Okay. And and he's writing to them, he's writing to these Christians to encourage them, to to remind them of the realities that now exist for those who are in Christ. He wants them to know who they are because of all that Jesus has done, especially uh, amidst the trials and the persecution that they were facing. And of course, um, while this, this letter was written Uh, to people 2,000 years ago. Uh, We know that this letter is still immensely relevant. It's immensely practical for us today because although times and and cultures and, and seasons change, people, especially the human heart, has not changed. And so Peter reminds us of who we are. He says that those who have put their faith who have put their trust in Jesus as savior and lord that we have been called that we have been ransomed with the blood of Christ that we have been given an inheritance that is unfading undefiled he says and that because of what Jesus has done not because of anything that we have done we are a people who now who now choose to live holy and set apart lives. In other words, followers of Jesus are changed people. They're changed people who live changed lives, which means uh, we look at everything differently now. And that's what Peter says, starting in the second half of chapter two, that again, because of who we are in Christ, we look at the government differently. We look at politics differently we look at work differently. We look at our, our relationships differently. And now uh, today we're gonna look at how how the gospel, how the gospel affects our collective character. We'll say it that way. How it affects our collective character and our witness to the world around us. We're gonna, we're gonna be looking at what it looks like to be a credible. Countercultural community in the world today. I tried to come up with four C's in a row. I think I did it, but it's easy for you to remember. Maybe okay. We're going to try to figure out today, or look at um, what it looks like to live as a credible countercultural community in the world today. And more specifically, uh, we're going to consider how do we as the church love one another. And then live out the implications of the gospel amidst the evil and the suffering that we see in our world, and particularly the evil and suffering that comes against us. Okay, So if you're taking notes, um, we have a lot, of, a lot of scripture to cover this morning, so I'm going to do my best. Um, but, but to sort of simplify things for us, I've, I've breaking this, broken this sermon up into sort of three sections here, and that's how we'll consider it. Um, we're going to progress through our passage this way. We'll consider three ways—three ways—that the gospel shapes our countercultural community. Okay, three ways that the gospel shapes our countercultural community. Um, and, and the first way—the first way—which which is going to serve as our first point this morning—is it changes or shapes how we love one another. Okay, how we love one another. Starting in verse eight. Uh, Peter, again, he says this. Lydia already read it for us, but we'll, we'll read through this verse again. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we know that Peter is writing to these church communities, again, who are scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And so when he says all of you, finally all of you, he's talking about, specifically, he's talking about those churches. He's talking about the, the, the church community. And then he, we see him here, he gives five adjectives to describe um, what the Christian community should be defined as, or what it should be. And what's really interesting, even before we start describing and defining these terms, It's interesting to me as I study this text that that Peter chooses words here very intentionally. He chooses words here that would have been totally foreign to those who were living within the normal, secular, Greco-Roman culture. These aren't common terms or common words. That the words that that Peter chooses here were, were actually typically reserved only for those who were in a family. These are family relational words, if you will. And and that's really important. It's really important for us to know because it really tells us what Peter is getting at here in this section of Scripture, that what Peter is is doing here is actually instructing the church, he's sort of commanding the church to not patter themselves after the culture, but, but after what it's like to live like family. That's what he's saying here. In other words, Peter is asking the church to value and live with each other in such a way that the world would see something radically different when they look at them, or when they look at us. And so with that understanding, sort of with that perspective, going into the text with that that background, if you will, let's look at these different adjectives. First, we see Peter calls the church, you and I, to have unity of mind. He says, have a unity of mind. And that word unity there um, is literally where we get the word harmony from, okay? If you've been here at Freedom Village for any amount of time, maybe a better way to do this would be to skim through our Facebook group in this online season. Um, and you can look and you could just kind of scroll through quickly um, all the people who would call this church home and you would find, you would see that it's actually pretty diverse here. Um, whether that be age, race, ethnicity, um, spiritual maturity, um, our gathering represents I'm um, in Seoul. Our gathering represents a lot of different people from a lot of different places in the world with a lot of different perspectives. Okay, and so the question is, um, how? What, what are we to live harmoniously about? Like we're, we're really diverse, and so what is this harmony we're trying to to achieve? Is Peter calling us here to a form of uh, of, of uniformity? Is that what he's saying? Like. He's saying, I want you all to sort of look the same, act the same, dress alike. Right? That's what I want you to do. So from now on, you know, you all have to wear plaid. Right? That's what you have to do, okay? It's what it means to be, a, you know, a church, a pastor. If you didn't know that, okay, you can YouTube any church in the States or anything like that, you'll see. They all wear plaid, right? It's, my, it's, like, a, it's like in the dress code, right? When, you went to se- when I went to seminary, you got to do it, right? So it means all of you need to conform, wear plaid. Is that what he's saying, right? No, of course not, of course not. Um, what he means is that, that we have harmony, that we are unified around the gospel. That's what he's saying, that we are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are unified on the hope and the grace that was revealed to us by the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ, which he talked about in chapter one. And so to use a, a musical analogy, that doesn't mean, that, doesn't mean that, that every single person will be singing or playing the exact same part, okay? But what it does mean is that we will all be singing or should be singing the same song. And okay? so that last song you're played, you could hear the three of them. It's the first time they've ever even, I think, sung together, I think. Is that true? I think so, okay? And they're harmonizing. I don't understand what they're doing, but it sounds really nice, <laughs> harmonizing with each other, they're not singing the same note, but you would know, you would know, even those of us who don't know music, if they were all singing a different song. Paul was up here playing guitar, and he's singing song one. You know, Darcy's over here on keys, and she's singing song two. Right? And Lauren's up here song, singing, singing song three. We'd be like, what in the world is going up on there? That we would say that there's a lack of harmony there. Um, but in that last song, for example, they're all singing different key, different note hopefully on key. I think it was. Um, but they're all singing the same song. They're, they're in harmony with one another. And that's what Peter's saying. Um, we all might be unique. We are unique. We're different. But, but Peter is, is telling us here, choose to sing, even though you're unique, choose to sing the same song. That's what he's saying. Set your mind, all of you, set your mind on Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And do that together, that's what he's saying here. Well then, Peter also says that we are to display sympathy, he says. Sympathy. Which simply means that we are, are simply supposed to be in one another's lives. That's what it means. So that, so that we can enter into what others are feeling, it means that we're supposed to engage, get familiar with people's pain, their hurt, their joys, their, their suffering. It means, even for those, the guys here, it means being sensitive, okay? It's a word we have to be, you know, means you're sensitive, actually, though. Using our emotions to help people feel cared for, accepted, and, and loved, and certainly, this, this here, it, it highlights the family and relational nature of the church, right? Because it's, it's hard to sympathize with someone that you aren't meaningfully connected to, right? It'd be very difficult for me to sympathize. Stephen sitting here, I know you can see it on the camera, sitting here in the second row. Um, he plays keys a lot, if you don't know who Stephen is. Um, it'd be hard for me to sympathize with him if I never spent any time with him. I don't know who he is. If he's just sort of a stranger to me in the distance, then how can I actually sympathize? So this is a call here to be meaningfully connected to one another. And then Peter deepens that. He says, have brotherly love. Have brotherly love, which is another word, again, that was only used within the context of family and the love that a family would have for each other. And so for those of you who, who have healthy family relationships, um, those of you who are blessed to be able to say that, you, you know that the way that you love and the way that you care for your family is unique. It's unique. It's different from the world, right? The burden that you have for your family is different than what you feel for a neighbor or, or for an acquaintance, for example, But since we are a family, Peter's reminding us of that, since we are a family, we should love each other like family, while at the same time being called to share our family love with the world around us. And then Peter calls us even deeper. There's a progression here. This is probably probably about as deep as he gets. He says, have a tender heart. Tough to translate that in English. I'd be interested to, to, to read different translations in your whatever languages, maybe Korean, what it says there. Have a tender heart. Um, the reason it would be difficult to, to translate in this in English is because it's, it's literally, or, or it actually means, the word is bowels. Okay? Your bowels. Um, your inner organs. Okay, that's what it's talking about here. And so have tender organs or tender bowels, like that wouldn't read too well, okay? Tender heart, he says. And so the idea here, though, is is to have a deep, inward, heartfelt care and concern for others. And so he's trying to get us away from this idea that it's acceptable for us to, to show some love to people now and then, like externally, Right? No, he's saying this is an inward love. It's actually a characteristic of your heart, it's it's from your inner being. And what's going on inwardly is then revealed in your outward actions. And then finally, Peter encourages us to have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. And I think, I actually think the Apostle Paul describes this well for us in Philippians chapter 2 verses three through four, when he says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's understand, if you read that and you think about doing that, or trying to do that, um, doing that is, is radical. It's radical. And we have to understand, at the same time, uh, or, or, or during this time that Peter was writing, humility was, was actually the reverse of the cultural values around them. Okay, being humble was the, the opposite, the transverse of what you would expect. And honestly, we know, we know, um, that our culture isn't much different, right? Right? doesn't matter, again, where you're from, Korea, somewhere in Europe, America, um, our values are much the same. We are so, so individualistic, so concerned with ourselves. Um, You might even say, um, we are, as a society, we are totally self-absorbed. And so Peter here uses this, this last word or phrase as a reminder That God's people should not be that way. Again, don't go the way of the culture. We shouldn't reflect the culture, but rather we should actually like genuinely be looking out for one another. We should consider others as much as we consider ourselves. That that's a lot of consideration. (laughs) Okay. And we do that uh, again out of a desire to be one, to have unity amongst the body of Christ. And so this is how a counter-cultural community who has been changed by the gospel, that's how they live. Right? We are anchored as a church family, as a family, we are anchored, rooted around the same kind of love and sympathy and care and concern that Jesus has for us. We live as a family, and in doing so, we are seen by the world to be a family. And so as we study through this text together, we start with this question, this question I hope that you meditate on. First of all, first of all, I think a good place to start is, are you part of this family? And by that, um, at least for now, I don't mean Freedom Village Church. By this I mean Jesus' church. Um, Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you belong to Jesus and therefore belong to his family? And And then to those of us who are here today watching online, those of you who have taken that step of faith, who've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, ask yourself, Am I truly known by these qualities, these characteristics that Peter here describes? Am I living these out here, here within even this gathering and in the world around you? Are you doing that? So so the question would be something like, um, am I concerned... Am I concerned for the unity here at FBC? Do I even consider the unity here at all? Am I ever am I even mindful of it? Um, am I mindful about, about loving and caring for others here within the body of Christ? Do I have any concern for that at all? Or am I just focused on myself and trying to survive or thrive? <laughs> And certainly what that takes and what that means is that you are known here and getting to know others here as well. It's going to require that. Well, then Peter moves on from, from how we're to love one another as a family to then how we are supposed to relate to the world when it comes to evil, okay? This is point two for us today um, It's a way that the gospel shapes our countercultural community in the way that we respond to evil, okay? And how we respond to evil. Let's look at verse 9. We're going to read it through verse 12 again. Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then, Who do evil. So, what is Peter saying here? What's he saying? What's he telling us? Well, first of all, we see there's this clear call, which is why it's one of our main points. There's this clear call to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And why is that? Why is that? Why does God even care about how we respond to evil? Why is he concerned with how you and I respond to evil? Well, there are a few, few clear reasons, and I, as I was kind of working through this text and trying to split this text up for this sermon series, I almost isolated this text by itself um, and did a whole sermon on it, all right? Um, but I didn't do that, and so I'm just going to make a quick few observations on it, but someday it would be worth, worth the time, at least in my opinion. Okay, so why is God concerned? Why does God care about how we respond to evil? And the first thing that I would say, it won't be on the screen, but you could write this down. The first thing I would say is that how we respond to evil says something about the mercy and grace of God. How we respond to evil says something about the mercy and grace of God. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Peter said this. Once, he said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And then he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And of course, there are countless other verses throughout the scriptures that point to the mercy and grace of of God. I could read for the next two hours all the texts that talk about the goodness of God's grace and his mercy, um, that the mercy that we've received. But, but the, point, the point that I want to make, the simple point that I want to make is that, is that the more that you and I are able to think and meditate on how merciful and how gracious God has been to us, by calling us out of darkness and calling us into light, that should move us, motivate us to not return evil for evil, but instead to bless others, to seek peace with others, which is exactly what Peter is telling us to do here. That we do not, we do not repay evil for evil, We don't get back at people, right? We don't retaliate because that's not how God treated you and I when we deserved it. When we did evil towards him, he didn't respond with evil towards us. But instead, so what do we do? We bless. We bless others even when they do evil towards us because we've been eternally blessed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have been given grace upon grace. Even though we've done evil towards the Lord, his response was mercy and grace. And so we do the same. We respond likewise. So I'll sum it up this way. Until until you and I see our own sin, see our own sin as greater, as greater than anyone else's sin against us or towards us. Until you get to that point, you will be tempted to respond the wrong way when evil is done towards you. And you'll never be able to bless others. So not returning evil for evil displays the mercy and grace that God extended to us. Second, I'll say this, that God cares about how we respond to evil um, because how we respond, how we respond to evil points to where our ultimate hope lies. How we respond to evil points to where our ultimate hope lies. Look again at verse 9. It says, do not repay evil for evil, revile for reviling, But, he says, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing, he says. And and what's the blessing? What's the blessing to which we've been called? Well, Peter told us in chapter 1. Look at these texts. In verse 4, he says, we've been blessed to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and undefading, kept in heaven for you. And then a few verses later, in verse 13, Peter's again encouraging us. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is that because our hope does not lie in this life, it does not depend on this life, it should free us then to look to the future hope of glory that will one day be revealed to us. And so this is a reminder from Peter that this life is not all that there is. That the day is coming. The day is coming soon when those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in Jesus, will reap a bountiful harvest with our Savior, with our Lord, in eternity to come. And then to further that point, Peter points, again, he points to a portion of Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, and by the way, who doesn't, okay, it's rhetorical, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, um, if you don't know anything about this psalm, about Psalm 34, and I'll assume this morning that you don't, even though some of you do. If you don't know anything about Psalm 34, I'll give you the bottom line. Psalm 34 is all about finding your ultimate joy, security, and refuge in Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's all about finding your ultimate joy, security, and your rescue, your refuge in Jesus. And so even though David, King David wrote this, even though David wrote this thousands of years earlier, Peter grabs a hold of this psalm. He takes this psalm here, and he he writes and reminds these scattered exiles and you and I that in the same way that the Lord rescued his people and rescued David, he will also always, always he's faithful to this. He will deliver those who place their trust and their hope in Christ. So when when David talked about loving life, and, and seeing good days. Okay, let's be clear about this as well. He's, what he's not talking about is living free from conflict, evil, or suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of suffering, he's talking about a life lived in and with fellowship with the Lord in fellowship with the Lord, in closeness to God, which is a reminder as well that there is no peace and there is no true satisfaction in the cycle of evil. It's not found there. That there is actually no hope, no ultimate hope in retaliation. Of course not. In our flesh, we think, we think that we'll find it. This person did this against me, so I'm going to do what they deserve, and that is going to give me peace. Now I'm going to be okay. That person wounded me, cut me deeply, so I'm going to wound and cut them back so that I now feel better, or now I find joy. And of course, we know. Those of you who have ever tried that before, okay, I'm sure the majority of us have, if it wasn't external, internally, and you will find, again, there is no peace in that cycle of evil. There is no hope found in retaliation, not not at all. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because our only real refuge, our only hope is found in being with and belonging to Jesus. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how, how am I responding to difficulties, trials, and evils in and around my life? And what does that say, not just to me, but what does that say to those around me about where I'm finding my hope? I don't know about you, um, but so often, I was thinking about this this week, so often my my hope is set. I place my hope um, on an end of a season rather than Jesus. I was thinking about this, like, and I was like, wow, I've, I, I've done that my whole life without even really knowing it, and we all do this. We set our hope on the end of a season rather than on Jesus. Like, like if I'll say to myself, when I just finish this, then I'm good. Or when this crazy, busy season ends, like on all this busyness and chaos, when that's done, I'll have peace. Or how many of us have said this? oh man, when COVID passes, oof, we're, we're good Then We'll be just fine. Everything's gonna be like peaches and cream and we're gonna be rainbows in the street. It's gonna be beautiful harmony because COVID ends. Because things were perfect before COVID, right? In our world, great. But, but that's what we say. Oh, I can't wait till this is over because then life is gonna be back to normal, which was great. We've gotten so far that we think life was great before COVID. That's how far we've gotten into this corona season. We do this. Um, I'll say to myself, when I do that, joy. When I get there, peace. When this just this one thing changes. But if we're honest, if we're honest, there's always the next challenge. There's always the next hard season. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But when COVID ends, and all of us, and I'll be there with you, have a ceremonial mask burning together. Dancing in the streets, spraying whatever, you know, liquid you allow in your house. And we will, I will be there at that bonfire burning every k ninety four ninety five that I have. Saving a few for the pollution outside. I'll be there with you. But, but to be the bearer, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it's just a matter of time. Once that ends, we'll push, the, we'll push the clock and it will just be a matter of time until the next hard season comes. For some of you, for some of you, life will get so difficult, you'll face such trials, there'll be such persecution. For some of us, some of us around the world, we'll wish we could go back to this season. We are so convinced, though, we're so convinced, oh, life will just be good, and that's because we've put our hope there. The next hard season will always come, and that's because sin will always be present in your life, in my life, in the world around us until Jesus returns. So we put our hope there, in him and in his return. So again with, that, again, with that shift in your mind, I hope, it makes sense then. Don't put your hope in retaliation or anything else because Peter and David remind us here that the good life, the good life is not found in returning evil for evil. It's not found in even the, the end of unjust suffering, but the good life, good days are just in knowing God himself. You can say that you have a good life today regardless of anything going around you if you're in close fellowship with the Lord. When people ask you, how's your day? You can actually genuinely say, pause and stop. Like, oh, it's been a good day. Why? Really? It's been a good day? Didn't you like work like a 10-hour shift? Yeah, it was a great day because I'm close to the Lord. See how that The gospel changes everything. It should should change your heart and your mind, even how you communicate and speak to other people. Then third, God cares about how we respond to evil. He cares about how you and I respond to evil because he wants us to remember that he is a good and just judge. He is a good and just judge. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, we know that living a a, a godly life does not earn our right standing before God. But we also need to remember that how we live our lives ultimately points to who we belong to. So when it says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and that he hears our prayers, it means means that the Lord knows who, who are his. He knows whose are his and who are not. He is aware and nothing this this assumes nothing goes unnoticed nothing that the lord sees everything he has his eyes on it all the righteous and the unrighteous he sees it all which means which means that we can trust him to do justice and to make all wrong right it's in his hands and that doesn't mean that we'll always get to see that in our day or in our lifetime. Okay, there will be times where it seems like in our world, like, like the wicked are prospering. It'll seem that way. But again, we know that because God is just and holy and perfect, he will deal with evil. He will deal with sin, And we all will stand under the the just judgment of God. All of us. Every single one of us. And so the question here is, will we be found covered by the blood of Jesus and standing in his righteousness? Or will we stand on our own record and in our own righteousness? And of course, my, my prayer is that all of us would be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own, but covered with the perfect, spotless record of our Lord. Now, um, maybe hearing all of this, thinking about evil and done against us and how we should respond, maybe, maybe, uh, hearing this, some of you are thinking, well, wait. Like, does that, does that mean that we're never to respond to human evil in our world? Um, and certainly not. Certainly not. Um, so an example of that, like, this is one of the reasons I believe we have leaders in our world, right, to hopefully be intermediaries of God's justice who are protecting and, and defending the fabrics of human society. That's a good leader's role and purpose to make sure that those under their care flourish. Right? And so then we speak out. We have the right to do that. We, we, we don't just sit back. Right? We call for justice when we see evil being done in our world. But we also understand when we do that at the same time that no institution is perfect. That there are times where, where evil and suffering um, will be out of control and, and sadly even other times where, where we can't make things right, that they'll just continue on that way. And so again, yes, speak up, but at the same time, don't get to a point where you're, you're tempted to return evil for evil. Instead, trust that God, again, that he ultimately sees everything, and that one day he will make all wrongs right. That's the point here. Well, uh, that leads to our last, our last point this morning. How does the gospel shape our countercultural community? How does it shape our, our family here? We see it, it, it shapes us in how we relate to unjust suffering. It's a different category here. How we relate to unjust suffering The more specific question here is is actually this, though. How how should we respond when we suffer for doing good? That's the question. How do we respond when we suffer for doing good? And I want to pull out um, a few sort of invitations that the Lord gives us to this. Um, I hope that this will be helpful to us. First, how do we respond to unjust suffering, or how do we relate to unjust suffering? First, we're called to fear the Lord, okay? We're called to fear the Lord, fear the Lord. Look again, starting at verse 13, it says this, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So we see here, Peter starts off by asking uh, sort of a rhetorical question. He says, who is there to harm you or who can harm you for doing good? And the answer, of course, is that for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to Jesus, no one can ultimately and eternally harm you. can't be done. Why? Again, in verse 14, because if we suffer for righteousness' sake, there is a far greater joy, inheritance, and blessing that is awaiting you. That's what's true in Christ. But while that's true, while that's true, while we might know that in our minds to be true... Again, I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, in our flesh, in our flesh, we are so tempted to, to lash out and respond to injustice, especially when it's done against us, aren't we? We can't take it. We can't handle it. Especially if you have like the personality type who like you live in a world where you, you really value fairness. Like things have to be fair, if someone gets something that you don't when you deserved it or you, you know how that works, you're like, this isn't fair. Life isn't fair. You know, how could they? How did that person get that promotion and not me? How did they get that benefit and not me? How did he get a girlfriend and not me? Look at me. <laughs> Look at him. How did, how did this happen? You know, <laughs> you're laughing because it's true. But I think the reason we do that, and I try to think long and hard about this, like, why do, why do I do this? Why do we do this? I, I think that's because the reason we do that is because deep down, really deep down, we all really struggle with fear. It's the reason that we respond so, so strongly to injustice, especially when it's done against us, because we, deep down we struggle with fear. Maybe it's because we're afraid of losing something. Or, or maybe we think that if, if I don't get this or, or it didn't go my way, then I'm gonna lose control of my life. I'm no longer gonna be master of my own life. Maybe we think that we're afraid of losing our status in society. Maybe we're afraid of losing our comfort. Right? Again, I didn't get that promotion. Oh no, like what am I gonna do? The motivation, oh, I'm losing comfort. Maybe we're afraid Maybe we're afraid that things won't be the way they think they should be or, even better, the way we want them to be. So we fear that. But Peter says, don't fear. He says, don't fear. In your hearts, he says, in your hearts. But in your hearts, he says, honor Christ. That, that literally means revere Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so, so scripturally, scripturally, try to follow this with me. Scripturally, the way to have no fear is to let a greater fear expel the lesser fear. Or another way to say that, the key to a greater reverence and awe in your life is to expel the lesser reverence that's in your life. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, well, if you think about it, If you think about it, again, we all have levels of fear, and and fear is a pretty motivating emotion, isn't it? Fear motivates us. You're like, I'm not really emotionally charged by fear. Think about this. Some of you, for example, you're afraid of spiders, okay? Some of you are. I'm not. I'm not afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of other things. Snakes. I don't like snakes. Spiders? Eh. Unless it's a big one. There's some, like, huge spiders out there. But in Korea, eh. Not so much. Some of you, though, it doesn't matter if it's this big and you can barely see it or if it's this big. Spiders terrify you. And so if you're walking, so let's say, or maybe you're laying down on your bed and one were to crawl by you, that would garner an emotional response. That might get you to jump, right? Or squeal, whatever sound effect you make. Okay? Come yeah. Whatever. Thanks. <laughs> That We respond to fear. And and many of us actually live our entire lives, again, in response to fear. Like, again, we're going through fear here for a second because I'm going somewhere. Again, like if you fear financial instability, financial instability in your life, you will work long and hard to not have to face that fear. That will motivate you to work hard because I fear being not stable financially. Some of you fear the opinion of people deeply, which is why you constantly compare yourself. It's not good for being on social media if you fear the opinion of people. It's why you overcommit yourself and never say no. I'm a little bit guilty of that sometimes. Some of you fear, some of you fear that who are her parents, some of you fear that your, your kids won't turn out the way that you hope. Or the way that you want them to turn out. So you, you domineer, you over-control. Right? I could go on and on and on about how fear motivates us and gets us to emotionally respond. And without realizing it, again, without realizing it, you, you might even be unaware today. We can, you can actually live your whole life in response to your fears rather than living in the fear of the one Who matters the most. So how do we respond rightly to unjust suffering? Have a healthy fear of the Lord. Do not fear. Honor the Lord with your heart. You're untouchable. Fear him. Don't be afraid. Which means letting the words, character, and holiness of God lead us to a place of reverential respect, Again, it's coming to the place where we have a deep sense of awe for who God is, what he's done, what he has said. And when you get to that place, when you're truly anchored in God's character and promises, you'll be be able to be grounded in enduring life's severest storms, including the way or the ways that you might suffer unjustly. Fear the Lord. Secondly, we're invited to engage with others. How do I respond to unjust suffering? Don't shy away from people. Actually engage others. It's sort of interesting. Look at verse 15. Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Really famous verse, especially of those of you who like apologetics. This is a verse I had to memorize in Scripture. It's like the apologetics verse. Give a defense for the faith that's within you, the hope that's within you. But we have to remember the context of here, I think, as well. The the context of being prepared to make a defense here is first, first, that our lives are making a defense. That's Peter's whole argument here, that the very nature of the church living as a unified, humbled, committed family who are not returning evil for evil, but instead who are blessing those who who come against them, who don't deserve it. Right? That should turn some heads by the way that we live our lives. It should make the world say, who are you? What's wrong with those people? How are you all so hopeful in the midst of suffering? It doesn't make any sense. And then along with, then we can explain, along with the way we are living, then Peter says, are we or we should give a verbal defense of the gospel, which leads us to, The question, are we able to give a verbal defense of the gospel? Can you, are you able to share the hope that's within you? Can you do that? Are you ready to do that? Are you willing to do that? Um, I believe it was the Pew Research Group um, who did a study. I think it was back in 2018. And um, it was done in America, and they they polled just some of the most well-known churches, like biggest churches from around the United States. I think it was like 100 of the biggest churches in America, something like that. And they did a survey, and it was about sharing their faith, people sharing their faith. And the first question wasn't even like, can you share your faith? Are you willing to share your faith? The first question was like, have you ever shared your faith? And the results of the study were just astonishing, shocking. It was something like, out of thousands and thousands and thousands of professing Christians, it was something like 1.5% of people said, I've shared the gospel with somebody. Incredible. Incredible number. Head-turning number. To be able to share the gospel, there has to be a willingness, a boldness, a courage to share the gospel. But also there needs to be a preparedness, a willingness, a, a desire to share the gospel. And so let me encourage you, maybe, maybe even this week, this is something that you, you practice. Maybe even in the mirror or something. It might seem foolish to do that, but be prepared. And maybe see, see if you can share the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Because maybe that's all you'll have on the subway or all you'll have on the bus or all you have is you're walking down the street and someone bumps into you and they're hurting and broken and the Holy Spirit leads you. Now's the time. Well, are you ready? Have you prepared? Can you do that in 60 seconds or less? See, see, test yourself. Can I share the hope that I have? And, and, can I do that without using big theological Christianese words? Can you do that? It's not easy. So be prepared. Peter says, when you face unjust suffering, and by the way, you will, you will. um, Verse 16 says, not if you are slandered. He says, so that when you are slandered, So when you face unjust suffering, you will. When that happens, Peter says, engage the culture. Engage it. With the way that you live, and with loving, thoughtful, and caring, careful words. Make sure, in other words, make sure that your life and your words are consistent. Don't be a hypocrite. Make sure they both, both your life and your words, share the hope of the gospel. They line up with one another. Make sure there's a hope in you, that means. Make sure there's a joy about you, that means. Because of who you've been made to be in Christ. It wouldn't make sense if you're always around your coworkers, and let's say that they're not followers of Jesus, and, and you are often in your workplace the source of gossip and slander. No peace. No hope. No joy. You're just miserable all the time. And you're living that way. And then someone is broken, let's say, at your workplace. And it's like, well, oh, this is the moment. They start asking you, hey, don't you go to church or something like that? Can you tell me about that? And then you'd say, oh, well, let me tell you about the, how hopeful and joyful I am in the Lord. Right? And they would be like, aren't you the one that's always miserable? See how that works? So the hope that's within us, what's true about the gospel, is that scene depicted in the way that you're living your life. That matters. And that's the way that we're supposed to respond. That's why we should respond rightly to unjust suffering. And then we see this this final invitation in how we relate to unjust suffering. Um, we're, called to, we're called here, we see in verse 17, to rest to rest in the sovereign hand of the Lord. It's deeply connected to our last, the, the, the point, point three from before when we talked about evil. This is verse 17. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I don't know if you picked up on that. I paused semi-dramatically for you. But Peter assumes here that sometimes, sometimes, it might be God's will that you suffer. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, sometimes it might be God's will that we suffer. And for some of us, for some of us, especially if you're new to the faith, maybe for those of you who are seasoned deeply in the faith, still this troubles you, um, that this just seemed a little bit off. Like how could this perfect, holy, loving God allow or even will suffering into my life or into our lives? And again, this is one of those topics that I, uh, these verses, I isolated, set it aside, and was like, that might be a whole sermon. It's another one of those. We're going to be in First Peter a long, long time. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but again, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. So, so I just want to say, at least for now, that our suffering... or or God's allowance of suffering in our lives doesn't mean that he's detached or unloving. Okay? Not at all. In fact, we know that throughout the scriptures, they teach that suffering actually, suffering actually produces all sorts of, types of, kinds of fruit in our lives. For example, we see in James chapter 1, that our trials, our challenges, our suffering, produces, James says, produces steadfastness in us. In other words, our trials, our suffering, evil that's done and comes against us, helps us grow in our faith. It helps to deepen our trust in the Lord and ultimately leads us into to more dependence on Him, which is what He wants. What she what we should want and what is for our good and our flourishing, deeper dependence on Him. And you know, I think I think many of us who've been following the Lord for any number of years um, know this, know this. That oftentimes, oftentimes, and I would even I would dare to say, most of the time, most of the time, it's our struggles. It's our, our darkest seasons of life. It's our, our difficult, or most difficult seasons in life that sanctify us, that grow us the most. It's in the midst of those times and coming out of those seasons where I grow in my faith the most. Some of the most godly people that I know um, Throughout my life of walking through the Lord, I've met a few in particular who wow me. <laughs> their faith just wows me. And it's no coincidence that if you're to listen to their stories, all of them have suffered deeply. Deeply. But that suffering has, has drawn them so close to the Lord. So the encouragement here again, is to remember remember, what we're trying to say here, I'm trying to get you to understand, is that your perfect father, you have a perfect father, a good, loving father. He knows and sees everything. So when you struggle, when you suffer, trust yourself to his care, to his love, to his justice, knowing again, as Peter said, here in verse 14 chapter 3 that through your faithful suffering through your good suffering that you are still blessed you're still blessed because why because the lord sees you he sees you he knows you and and his ears are open to your prayers it's amazing He hears your cries. He's listening to your cries. And he will respond. He will answer. So just to close things this morning, I think the main point that we can take away from from Peter's words here this morning, this sort of longer section of Scripture, if I was to give you just one takeaway, it would be this, simple, that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It changes the way that we love others. It changes the way we experience evil in this life. And it even it even changes the way we suffer for the Lord. And there will be times when this is extremely hard to do, to keep this perspective, to live this out. Of course there will Right. Actually, I think most of the time, the majority of the time, having this perspective and living this way is tough. Is tough. So hard to do. But, but when it seems too difficult, when it seems too difficult, my encouragement to you is not to go back and necessarily even listen to this sermon. My encouragement to you is to flip back one chapter and to read again, Read again how Peter began this whole section. There's a reason he ends talking with suffering here, but we have to remember how he began this whole section. There's a reason, there's a reason that you and I are called to love. There's a reason that you and I are called to not repay evil. There's a reason, there's a reason that you and I are called to suffer well. To suffer well. Because look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 24. I'm going to read this slowly because I don't have time to preach the sermon again. I did that a couple months ago. But now it all comes together. And I want you just to think about the beauty and the weight now. From what we talked about today, reading these words. Listen to this. For to this, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You, Have been healed. You see, Jesus, your Savior, knows all, sees all, and He left an example for you and me to follow that even in the midst, even in the midst of His unjust suffering. Even in the midst of his humiliation, he was mocked, scorned, spit on. Even in the midst of his shame, his death, his very death on the cross, he committed no sin. He did not repay evil for evil, but willingly, humbly, hung and died on the cross to give us an example of what it looks like to love, what it looks like to fully trust the Father. And because he ultimately knew, Jesus ultimately knew, he did this because he knew, he knew where his true hope was found. And in him doing this, what was the result? What was the result of Jesus approaching, going to the cross, suffering this way? Well, we know many, including the majority of us here watching online, many looked at his example, made the decision to put their trust and hope in him and in the gospel, and glorified, chose to glorify God. And so church family, let's be encouraged. Let's be encouraged today that we have a hope that is within us, even in the midst of our suffering. And then knowing that hope, let's choose, let's choose today, tomorrow, next week, next month, this year, the years to come, let's choose to be a credible counter-cultural community. Not for our namesake, not for our glory, not for the, the fame of Freedom Village even, but so that others in our city would get to know and see just how good, gracious, merciful, and loving our God is. Amen? Let me pray for you.